For those of you that, for whom this is your first time here, uh, I wish you could stand um, where I stand. Uh, I've had the privilege of being a part of New Community with my wife and family for a number of years. And uh, you walked into this room this morning, and it is holy space. We're certain of that. Uh, God is here every weekend, and he just fills out the praises of his people, and we appreciate that. It's also liminal space for us as a congregation. You know, that word means threshold or transition, and we're in the middle of liminal space. And if you're here for the first time, uh, you don't know the story of uh, this church. Uh, we just said goodbye to a really precious friend and pastor, Pastor Peter. And that was just a couple weeks ago. Uh, so we're just living in this liminal space right now. It's not that we haven't been through transition before. There was a time, we recall it, Sunday where heavy on Pastor Peter's heart was some of the things that were going on in the life of the church. And he just actually just crumbled right here up in front. And um, leaders of the church have said, Pastor Peter, we love you, we care for you, take some time away. And during that time, uh, we learned something more about this church. We learned that there were remarkable people that, um, that occupy this space and this family with us. And the church, frankly, flourished in ways I think none of us expected that it would. You know, it's so easy, isn't it, when you see one particular person most oftentimes in front that you don't really take a measure of the character of the whole place. And we've seen that. Um, we've seen that over the last number of months, too, as we've gone through just a really difficult uh, 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 time for us as a church. I would say, to the, I would say this to you. Um, I have the privilege with my wife to go out to California and God's given us a call to pastor a church out there. And if you don't mind, I want to take every single one of your staff with me. <laughs> I say that without qualification. Absolutely, with every single one of them. Just the way that they have lived and served and continue to do it. I am frankly astounded by that and sad to leave. Um, because I just, I'm just so intrigued to learn and to see what God does with new community next. Liminal space for now. We're in a series where uh, the leaders of the church have said, let's just, let's look at the stories of Jesus together. And last Sunday we appreciated what Emily shared from Mark chapter 4, and I just said, I'll just take the next section. So that's where we're headed this morning as we gather together. I just have to say to you, I'm feeling, um, you know, that song we sang about bones, it's a reference to dry bones in Scripture. There's that picture of this valley of dry bones and it just seems so dry and deserted. And, and God's voice has spoken into that place and they come alive. And I'm praying for that this morning. I feel particularly frail this morning. Uh, maybe some of you might have other issues. Maybe you're feeling particularly callous this morning. <laughs> What, what, whatever it is, right, that kind of gets in the way of us opening our heart up and listening to God. And it's true for every single one of us. So the, the best thing we can do is we can just ask God to just kind of shatter that stuff and have the bones come alive for just a little bit longer this morning as we worship him and as we pay attention to what he wants to say to us. So I would just invite you to enter into this prayer, okay? Let's pray as we begin. 
Dear precious Heavenly Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here among us and we need you to be, frankly, because there's stuff in our life that feels brittle or fragile or, or desperate, bones that need to come to life. And so God, would you please just open our minds just a crack and, 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 and come in and, and say what we need to hear, uh, our hearts um, to feel what we need to feel. Um, and our, our energy to live what we need to live. So Lord, I pray that you would take um, these words, uh, mine and yours, and you would use them in each of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to share with you a, a moment in our life that happened a number of years ago. I was on a plane uh, from Milwaukee to Minneapolis, not because I had planned it, in fact, I booked the flight just hours before. I think my wife did. Um, it came just after a phone call that I had received. It was a Friday afternoon, and I was done with my sermon, and I was, I, I was almost done. And the phone rings in my office, and it's my dad. And a few words actually come out of his mouth because I discovered he can't speak. Uh, and a police officer takes the phone, and he tells me that my younger brother... Um, has just been shot and will probably not live. And um, they were medevacking him from a remote area in Minnesota, Wisconsin, to Minneapolis to a trauma unit there. And I just have to tell you, on that plane, without knowing anything that was going on, waves of grief just swept over me, of memories. Uh, we had just been water skiing a couple months before out on the lake, and it was just vivid and wonderful of fears, of questions. On its own, that would have been enough. That, that was too much. But added to that, as a pastor, we had gone through some, I had gone through some really difficult times. Friends who had walked away from their marriages uh, with a sense of callous regard, disregard for their wife and for the kids who came over to our house as we tried to navigate caring for them and their family trying to pastor friends who were making decisions that would wreck their lives and the lives of others as well. And what, what just washed over me was this question, uh, Jesus, what do you actually do? I mean, really, what, what do you actually do? It's a compliment to the question that Emily drew our, drew our attention to last Sunday. Uh, Jesus, do you care? Uh, and I guess I would say, I mean, I was a pastor, right? It, it's, it's a professional calling to know that Jesus cares, right? Otherwise, otherwise you're not long in the profession. <laughs> but I mean, so the sense of I, I know Jesus cares, but the, the accompanying question is, so what's going on here? What about this? I sure you care but I can't figure out what in the world you must be up to because I don't see you doing any of the things that I would anticipate you would be doing if you did care. And in the middle of that, the question becomes then, what does that faith look like with questions like that? Do you care? And what's going on here? And when we move in from Mark chapter 4 to Mark chapter 5, we actually continuous section of stories 
that let us know, understand the characteristics of enduring faith, of sustaining faith in the midst of brokenness and in the midst of loss. No kidding, that's what this section is absolutely about. Mark catalogs stories of broken people and Jesus is there in the midst of it. I appreciate some of what Tim Keller has said about the Gospel of Mark. He says it's essentially an anthem about Jesus. It's a celebration. I mean, it's a, it, from a literary standpoint, it's a, it's a beautiful piece of literature. And some of that care is the way it's just developed is part of the anthem, part of the celebration of, of who Jesus is. But it's an anthem of Jesus for regular people, for broken people, for people like you and me. It is, it, it is an anthem for me to hear about Jesus and for you and everyone else if they're willing to come to terms with a God who actually wants to ask, answer those questions, whether he cares and what in the world is going on and live by faith in the midst of it. So the calling, the invitation here is to recognize that Jesus does care and that we can be people of faith. And as I said, these stories are clustered together. It's actually interestingly written. Mark does a lot with time. You'll see immediately or the next day. And, and they frame sections and stories. And there's a frame on this one as well too. There's a declaration that it's the evening that occurred just as the disciples got in the boat. And Emily talked about that last Sunday. And it ends at the end of chapter 5, actually into chapter 6, where it talks about the Sabbath. So there's a frame there of four stories. And here's what's interesting about all of them. They tie together. There's a theme that courses through all four of them, and it is that people are filled with fear. The disciples were afraid because they were, the boat was about to, to sink. Uh, the garrison people, well, we'll see in chapter 5, they were afraid because Jesus had just cast out a demon into the herd of pigs and the, the, the whole business just went pell-mell down the, down the, um, the hill and into the water. 2,000, the whole franchise gone just like that. They were terrified by what Jesus had just, simply, what Jesus had just done. And then there's a woman who's afraid. Uh, she has been bleeding for 12 years. And then finally there's Jairus, this important official who seems to have it all together in his life, is filled with fear. So that's the first section of four. And then there's another one. It's a section of demonstrations of power. Jesus' power over the seas, Jesus' power over demons, Jesus' power over persisting illness, and Jesus' power over even death itself. And then there's another one of four. And that grouping of four is talking about the character of faith. And this is where the text is leading us. Jesus calls his disciples to faith in him after he has calmed the storm. The people of the region of the Gerasenes have no faith in him and Jesus calls them out because of that. Or at least Mark does as he tells us the story. And the woman has faith, it says in chapter 5, verse 34, in Christ. And then finally, Jairus is invited to have faith in Christ, it says, just believe. So you see it? I mean, Jesus, uh, Mark is telling us a story. And it's not just a sequence of events. He's saying something here to people in fear about the power of God and what it means to live a life of faith in the midst of that. So let's dig into it and let's look at it. There are four stories. We're going to pay most of our attention on the third and the fourth. The first is this. The disciples need safety from the storm. 
That's their need. They need something from Jesus. The second is the garrison man who is riddled with demonic uh, 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 devastation. He needs deliverance from his torment. And then there are two other people that are in need. And here's where I want to focus most of our attention, although we'll get back to the garrison. It's the first one is Jairus. And the second one is a woman. Yeah, that's right. We don't even know her name. That's how insignificant she was in her community. A woman. So let's look first of all at Jairus. Let me just tell you some things and then we'll read the text together. Jairus was a ruler in the synagogue. He had great devotion to God. He was morally respectable. He was wealthy. He was socially distinguished. Unfortunately, his daughter was deathly ill. She only, we know this from the account, she actually only had minutes to live. And Jesus is concerned about this distinguished person's brokenness and his need. And so one would imagine the crowd would be as well. He mattered in the city. He was what we might call a big deal in town. And so his problem is our concern as well. And so it seems right to them that Jesus would intervene in this situation. Of course, it's, it's Jairus, isn't it? And they want to be there when it happens, so they join the ambulance parade. They didn't have ambulances back then. They had like ambulance parades, an entourage of people that would just head towards the crisis and do what they could to solve it. So you can just picture this. There is Jesus in this ambulance parade with a whole bunch of swarms of people around him as he moves towards Jairus' home to help with his daughter plowing through traffic. And that's when we come to discover the second person in this account. It is a woman. Now she has been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She has, I love this phrase, she has suffered under the care of many doctors. Apologies to those of you in the medical profession, but the medical profession can still be that way, can't it? Some cures are actually pretty harsh, and she had wasted all of the money she had on cures that didn't work for her. She no longer had any financial capacities. Her condition was merely getting worse and worse, and she thought to herself this. She says, if I touch his garment. Now, in that culture, in that time, there was a superstition surrounding important people, and it was this, that the power was not only inside of them, but it was actually transmitted to their clothes. And, and so, she, I mean, she heard it. She believed it. And so, and so she, if I can just touch, touch his clothes, grab just a little bit of it <clears throat> quietly without anybody noticing, and here's what happens. Immediately, it says, the bleeding stopped. She feels it in her body. She knows. And not only does she know something, but Jesus knows something he realizes the power has left him. Should we read the story? Yeah, let's do it, all right? Let's just look. In, in Mark chapter 5, I'm going to begin in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. My daughter is dying. Please come, put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. So Jesus went with him. 
A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. I told the story pretty well, didn't I? I mean, it's just right there. But let's, let's just continue. Let's see what happens next here. He realized the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, the disciples said. I mean, can, are you crazy? Who touched your clothes? Everybody has touched your clothes, Jesus. But I'll read the text. And yet you can ask who has touched me. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Well, let's just understand what's going on here. I mean, everything is going well for Jairus until this woman touches the hem of his clothes and is healed. I mean, imagine Jairus thinking, we, we got to get there. I, I, my, my, my daughter is, is near death and you can do something about it. And this has just got to sink him to the depths. And Jesus turns around. He was headed in the right direction. Jairus, is in, his daughter is in critical situation. And what's Jesus doing? He's turned around. You can just imagine Jairus' heart just sinks right now. And it gets worse than that. In verse 32 it says, but Jesus kept looking around for her. I mean, this is a crowd of people and he's stopped. He's turned around, he's stopped. And, and then we read that Jesus asked her questions and it says, and she told him the whole truth. Do you understand what's going on here? Jairus must know that the person who has suffered for 12 years has stepped in front of the one who may not live 12 more minutes. Tim Keller in his book on the Gospel of Mark says, this is medical malpractice. Triage this and you'll agree in terms of urgency and in terms of importance. Jairus' daughter gets the most attention and the first attention. Guess what we learn in this story? Jesus doesn't triage. Nope. Nobody, nobody steps in front of what he's doing and wants to do in your life. Jesus doesn't discriminate. He doesn't discriminate according to status. He doesn't discriminate according to your missional value or capacity or benefit to him, a community, or anyone else. He doesn't discriminate and let the people up in front. All the worship people here, I mean, they must go first, right? 
You should have seen them. They were here early practicing. If Jesus is going to prioritize anyone, it's got to be the worship leaders, right? No. Jesus does not triage. He does not discriminate. And he's not doing it here. And frankly, he's not doing it in my life either. Or in yours. Jesus does not discriminate. And the second component of this is that he's always on time. God's timing has nothing to do with God's concern. We know this because of the rest of the story. We haven't gotten there yet, but spoiler alert, she's, she's brought back from the dead. God's timing has nothing to do with his concern. And we're actually going to discover, on the other hand, God's timing has everything to do with his concern. Part of the waiting is part of what God wants to do in Jairus' life. The storm is often an element in knowing his concern more deeply. I mean, Jesus, when Jesus told the disciples to get in the boat in chapter 4, do you think he didn't know what was brewing out on the water? Here we go. We're going to get on the boat and we're going to head into the storm right now. Jesus does not triage and he is always on time. My concerns being unaddressed in the moment is not about him being distracted by the moment. It is not about him being busy. It is not about him being less interested in you ever, ever, ever. Can you believe that? And you sitting here right now just saying, it's about time. And you must not care. I don't know what you're doing, but it just seems all broken to me. So in the midst of this story, in the midst of this context, we discover the character of who Jesus is. And I'm going to finish the story, and then I want to just briefly itemize four aspects of the kind of faith that Jesus is calling us to as his followers. He's inviting us to. Here's how the story continues. But Jesus, uh, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore, they said. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and he said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? Child's not dead, just asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said, Talitha Kohum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus left there and went, with his home, went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. That's the end of this section of this story. I want us to look at faith now. Can we do that? I want to say this is the big idea our faith in Jesus is all we have and it's all we need. 
It's all we have, and it's all we need. The faith here that Jesus calls us to is a faith that is, first of all, simple faith. Nothing added to it. In fact, this is why Jesus took time with the woman who had the issue of blood. He wanted her to know that her superstition had nothing to do with what Jesus does. He says, daughter, your faith, not your superstition, has healed you. That's it. You didn't do anything just the right way. I know what many people were touching me. Look at them. You. It wasn't the fact that you touched me. It was the faith that led you to do so. Nothing beyond that. I think so much of what happens when we're in crisis or we don't feel like God is doing what we want to do is we just add on superstitious notions, perhaps. I'll give you an example for me. As a young person, God wasn't answering my prayers. Anybody ever experienced that before? So I was told what you do is you start out with, Dear Heavenly Father, and we end with, If it be thy will. And then there were all of these disputes over, do we pray in the name of Jesus? Do we pray in the name of the Spirit? What do we do? And I'll tell you, I was just twisted and contorted trying to figure out what I needed to do to somehow get Jesus' attention. Has your life ever been like that? God, you don't hear me. What do I have to do next? What's the right thing to do? And Jesus said to the woman, faith. Simply faith. Trust me. Nothing else. There's another aspect of this, and that is that, uh, actually, before I go on, I want to say a little more about this. Um, it, you, you've heard the, uh, perhaps, uh, translation of, of uh, uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 11 uh, by Eugene Peterson in the message. He talks about... Um, are you tired and burned out on religion? Come to me. It says, learn the unforced forced rhythms of grace. And I think what we do is we construct a religion that is filled with things we have to do to get the attention of God, and it will burn us out pursuing that. And Jesus is saying here, it's, it's faith, friend. It's faith. And that's what's happening here this morning. We are simply here worshiping. Listening now for Jesus' words and present with him. And I think we can struggle even as a congregation say, if I'm going to grow spiritually, if I'm going to be okay, I need continuity around here. We might even say, I need Pastor Peter around here. The, the reality is this, is that it's always been Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It is still Jesus. And it will always be Jesus. Simple faith. It's Jesus, friends. There's a second aspect of this, and that is that Jesus' faith is complete faith. It's, it's whole faith. The crowd that witnessed Jesus' conversation with the person decimated by demons, we didn't read it, but you can go back and look at it if you want to later. They were interested in Jesus until he sent their business over the cliff. I mean, it was kind of fascinating. It was a, have a kind of conversation with someone like that. And then Jesus sent their business over the cliff, literally and figuratively. And they said, would you please leave now? 
The woman thought something needed to be added to her faith. The crowd wanted Jesus to subtract something from faith. We will take it as long as it doesn't hurt the business. That's the kind of faith we want. We section it off and we'll say, we'll take that from you, Jesus. You can, I'll give you Sundays, but I'm in charge of Monday. I'll give you my family. I'll give you my friends, but I've got my future. I've, I, I've got my parties. And, and all of this is what I'll do your way. And this is what I intend to do my way. It's a temptation to see faith as individual components of our life that we will choose to surrender or not to surrender to, to God. And you know where it leaves us? It leaves us in fear, wanting Jesus to leave, rather than like the demoniac who's sitting there fully clothed and in his right mind. I want to be living in my right mind. The franchise doesn't matter as much as that. And sometimes I surrender all the time. I surrender the friends. I surrender all of it so that I can have living in my right mind. Complete faith. It's every portion of our life. And if you feel like you're going crazy, it's fair to ask the question, why am I not in my right mind? And God might nudge you and say, because friend, it's faith that's complete or it's no faith at all. This is, we, we walk into places like this, and for some of us, the question that is just coursing through our head and our heart is this, will I give my whole life to Jesus? And Jesus says to you, do you see that man fully clothed and living in his right mind? Do you want that more than anything? That's what I provide. Live there. Live with that. Rather than saying, Lord, just didn't like the last move you made. And your next move is to, is to leave. Is to move out of that part of my life. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, Jesus said. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforth rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and rightly. Can you imagine what the social media feeds would have been like after that account? There would be some people that would be tweeting out, watch out for Jesus, he'll ruin your, your business. And the others will say, watch for Jesus, he'll bring peace to your life. They both might be true at the same time. Faith is faith, no more, no less. We must not add more and we must not offer to Jesus less. Without Jesus, we don't enjoy the life he intended for us. And then there's a third characteristic of faith and that is that it's patient faith. To trust patiently. Jesus said to Jairus, believe. And it was probably pretty hard for him to believe when he turned around, he looked around, and he sat in in a conversation where the whole story was told, knowing full well that his daughter was in the most vulnerable position. All the while, Jesus was doing what most mattered 
to Jarius, to trust him with his timing, with his power, with his care, when he couldn't figure out what was going on. I've now been in enough of those places where I say to God, I know you care, I just can't figure out what you're doing. That it's easier for me to say, I can't figure out what you're doing, and I'm okay with that. I've seen it enough, it gets easier. We have a, uh, at the church I pastored, we have a church membership class, and uh, we will say to all of the people that come and say, I'm interested in being part of Hillcrest was the church. I'm interested in being part of Hillcrest and we want to join up. And in the membership class, we will say to them, some of you shouldn't be joining this church. Uh, And the reason you shouldn't be joining this church is because you just left a place where God just only just now began to do the real work of what he wanted to do in your life. Isn't it interesting that we move away from the tough stuff when the tough stuff actually might be the curriculum that Jesus has for our life? We actually invite people to not become members of our church, to go back to that tough place because Jesus is is in the middle of that storm and, and Jesus is going to work his curriculum for your life in the midst of that storm. And that's why I just have to say to those of you that are here this morning, uh, well done. Just keep moving through. Keep seeing what God has next. That is patient faith. And Jesus works well in the midst of uncertainty. And then the fourth aspect of faith is that it's personal faith. I think that we, uh, when I was growing up, we would talk about your personal you know, a, 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 a personal faith in Christ. And I think that was just kind of used as a, as a slogan rather than as the character of what faith is about. But we see the personal nature of what faith looks like here in this text. Did you notice the name that this woman actually had? Did you, did you see that in the text? She starts out being described as a woman. She actually receives a name. Did you see it? It's right there. Jesus calls her daughter. (laughs) He gives her a name. And he calls her his daughter. You know, that's the only occurrence in the Gospels of Jesus saying that. He doesn't call her client. He doesn't call her loyal subject. He doesn't call her entourage member. He doesn't call her potential person to tell a story about. He calls her daughter. Did you also notice that it says uh, at the end of chapter 5, don't tell anybody what I just did? You wonder why that is? So I'll tell you just a quick circumstance for us. So my brother was uh, totally paralyzed. He lived 23 years paralyzed. And in the midst of that time, and you probably experienced this too with family difficulty, family members can easily become, can morph into caregivers. And that's what happened for us. And Mike was paralyzed from the neck down. And someone finally came to us and said, did you notice what's happening in your family? You're no longer siblings, mom, dad, uh, uh, sisters and brothers. You're actually caregivers. And we were. We had completely become caregivers. And uh, the caregiver said to us, I'm the caregiver, you're the family. Be the family. Be the family. 
And you know why Jesus says don't tell? Because the immediate notion would be, if I need healing, I'm going to go to Jesus. If I need a great meal, I'm going to go to Jesus. All of these things that Jesus could be characterized by that are true of them, but they're not true of who he is. And in the midst of this, he says, don't tell because I will be mischaracterized as a person who comes to the aid of hungry people. And hungry people matter to him, of sick people. And sick people matter to him. But he says, that is not nearly all of who I am. Uh, I am. I am family. And you are mine. And you are precious to me. We even see this at the end of this story where Jesus says about this young girl, Talitha Koum. And it says, and the English helps us here, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. But scholars actually have noted, little girl is uh, an adequate English translation of what's being said here. Jesus is actually saying, precious one. Tim Keller said, Jesus is saying, honey, sweetheart, Oh, oh, dear, dear, precious girl. Honey, it's time to get up now. And I want to leave you with that because my question for you this morning, is that what Jesus is saying to you this morning? Dear, precious, beloved, honey, it's, it's time to get up. Others were saying, oh, she's dead. And people might look at you or you might even say, you know, I, I feel pretty dead inside. And the invitation here is to assess whether we've added effort to our faith to get his attention and it's killing us. Or whether we've partitioned off sections of our life to limit our faith and it doesn't, and it's driving us crazy. Or whether we've grown impatient and we've walked away. Or whether we've forgotten that we're beloved and that he is near. What if Jesus were actually saying to you this morning, sweetheart, it's time to get up. Let's keep going. Let's keep walking on. Dear ones, it's time that we live our faith the way Jesus invites us to here in Mark chapter 5. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your love for us. It's actually hard to believe. And yet, then those incidents occur, those stories are told, and we know it's true. We've seen it firsthand, and we've experienced it. We've heard it from other people, and and we've forgotten that. And Lord, I pray now that you would call us back to faith, to trust you, to trust you patiently, to trust you wholly, uh, to trust you simply. Show us what that means, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.